We're going to be in John 2 today. Today we're going to begin this series called Jesus at the Table. In this series, we're going to be looking at a handful of times where Jesus shared a table with various people and what happened when he did. And I was inspired to do this by what I found in the second chapter of the book, Living the Resurrection by Eugene Peterson, uh, that we studied uh, in the weeks leading up to our celebration of the resurrection. It was a really good book, and so even if you weren't a part of that, get that book from Kindle or order it. Really good book to read. Um, but in the chapter about resurrection meals, Peterson wrote that the gospel writers are fond of telling stories of Jesus at meals. The meal was one of their favorite settings for showing Jesus as he revealed himself, talked, worked, and welcomed men and women to him. And he went on to say that Sunday worship is important. The Bible studies we attend are important. The retreats that we take are important. But over a lifetime, the unnoticed and unrecognized presence of the risen Christ at our meals may be more formative of the life of Christ in us. I really like that. So this, this past week, as we were starting to uh, gearing up for this, uh, I asked a question on social media. Uh, about the most interesting wedding experiences people had ever had. Uh, and as a result, as you might have guessed, it's some crazy stuff, right? Uh, I heard about a woman setting her fingernail on fire at the Unity Candle. Uh, I won't say who it was, but y'all all know her. It was Jackie. I wasn't going to say it. Well, she put her name on Facebook. I know. Yeah, there you go. Um, uh, then there was a pastor and a groom who pulled up to the altar in a boat. Uh, I asked if they'd been fishing and was told no, so I guess that was just the plan. Um, a step-grandmother whose dress caught on fire as she backed into a, a candle that was in a window area. Uh, there were various stories of insects getting involved and getting in dresses and hair and things like that. Uh, and there was a few other stories. Uh, but I have my own little incident that I want to share this morning as far as weddings go. Uh, when Melissa and I got married, we thought we would be smart about the whole throwing rice thing. Uh, and so we handed out these little bells instead. And so people were supposed to sort of ring the bells as we left uh, to get in the car and take off on our honeymoon. And so that was the thing, instead of the rice. Bells. And we didn't want the rice getting into anything, or I think they had already transitioned to bird seed by that point because the rice was hurting the birds. So we didn't want bird seed everywhere and all the things uh, because it gets into everything. Uh, and so as we began to make our way out to the car, we would go to step out of the building, and my friend and former roommate uh, had apparently purchased a large bag. We're talking like a 10 pound bag of bird seed. He climbed up on the roof above where we were walking out. It was like a flat surface, so he's right above us. Uh, and you can see where this is going. Uh, as we exited and walked below him, he dumped the entire bag on us as we walk out. Birdseed got everywhere. 
uh, it was, and everybody was laughing and enjoying it. Um, we, we acted like we were laughing and enjoying it. Um, but I think I was still finding birdseed in parts of my clothes later that night at the place we stayed in Amarillo. Um, but that's not the end of the story, okay? I vowed to get my friend back. Or I guess I should say I, I promised, because that sounds less ominous, right? Uh, so I promised him that when he got married, something would happen in turn. The, the quick lesson there is, don't do something unless you already got married first. Um, but anyway, a few years later, his wedding just happened to be scheduled right before 4th of July weekend, uh, which meant there were all these firework stands on the edges of town. Uh, and I orchestrated the purchase of several strings of black cats, and those are the ones uh, where there's like 20 small firecrackers on, on one main fuse, uh, and when you light it, it's like pop, 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 like all just popping off everywhere. Uh, those are the ones. So we all, all the groomsmen had their own string of black hats. Uh, and being the kind and thoughtful friend that I am, me and the other groomsmen did not set them off during the ceremony. Uh, we wanted to be respectful. Uh, so instead, when they went to get into their vehicle, we lined up right at the end of the sort of walkway where everybody was by the car. Uh, everybody's wishing them well, cheering. Their thing was bubbles. They didn't do uh, bird cedar, they did bubbles. So people were blowing bubbles, there's all these bubbles flying around. Um, and all the groomsmen are there, and as they start to approach us, we all lit the firecrackers and threw them down behind us. And what happened next is the best part of the story. Uh, even though I thought I was about to get shot, actually, um, so all at the same time, his wife got spooked, and she dove into the back of the SUV, like launched herself into the back of the SUV. Um, and I, I mean, she's never liked me since, so that makes sense why all that would be the case. But my friend just started laughing. He thought it was hilarious, and I think he actually got in trouble for that later. Uh, but meanwhile, his father, who was a captain in the Texas Rangers, uh, you know, the kind that wear a cowboy hat and a badge and a gun, those Texas Rangers. Um, he had immediately reached for his gun uh, when they went off. And now, my friend assured me this week that his dad would not have had a hip holstered gun on him at the wedding, that it would have been in his boot. Uh, obviously, I'm very thankful for that. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was quite eventful. I really did think I was going to get shot. Um, I can't think of another wedding that was more crazy than that one, although hearing the stories of some of these things catching fire and all of that, that seems pretty wild to me. Um, it's good that no one was seriously injured in any of this, including me. Uh, but the reason I'm talking about crazy wedding stuff is that today as part of our series of Jesus at the Table, we're going to take a look at a time when Jesus went to a wedding uh, and what happened when he was there. It's not really the same as the stories that I've just told, but it is, I think, even more dynamic. Uh, so follow along with me. We're going to read in John 2, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, 
what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. May God bless the reading of his word. All right, so here we, we sort of get a window into Jewish life in the first century. Uh, a wedding celebration in that day and time uh, and culture would last a, a week, uh, and it would include a lot of different aspects. Uh, for example, given the location, we're talking about a very small town, Canaan, Galilee, uh, most likely even smaller than this town. Uh, the people involved there were mostly going to be local family and friends, though some would have probably traveled from neighboring towns. Uh, and this in itself would have taken a day or two or three, depending on you know, how far they were away. Uh, which means for them, this may have been closer to a sort of a two-week commitment. And we think about it in terms of our own culture and the, the sort of the expectations that we put on time. This seems outlandish, right? But for them, this was like having a big family reunion. Uh, this was an, an, a very important time. And even though it doesn't explicitly mention this in the text, chances are uh, this was extended family members of Jesus through his mother Mary. Uh, we can infer this based on how concerned she was about the wine and, and the family. Uh, as well as her ability to gather servants and do something about it. Uh, another thing we should recognize is the use and need for wine at this week-long feast. Now, we don't know how many people were there exactly, but it was obviously more than the host prepared for. And in turn, they ran out of wine too soon. Such a thing would bring huge embarrassment and humiliation on a family and was considered a bad omen for the marriage itself. And this is why Mary was concerned, even though she wasn't the host. But Jesus had shown up with his disciples, which added to the number of guests, and it actually might have been the cause of the problem at hand, if you think about it. You know, it's like I'm not saying that his disciples were a bunch of wine-drinking drunks. That's not what I'm getting at. But there were more of them. Now there's less wine. Uh, one other thing we need to know about the setting and the context has to do with the water jars. Uh, in the Jewish culture, regular bathing and ritual cleanliness was a very important part of life. A marriage uh, event was no exception. Both the bride and groom would have had to be immersed in water as a, a ritual cleansing before taking their vows. Homes didn't have running water back then, obviously. Uh, instead, each Jewish home would have some sort of dugout bath area. 
uh, some would be nicer than others, depending on the family, and uh, all of them would be used for the same reasons, though. The servants of the master of the house would regularly take these 20 or 30 gallon jars down to the well uh, that was probably situated uh, somewhere in town, maybe just outside of town, uh, and then they would fill them all up and bring them back in order to fill the bath. These jars were really heavy, they're made of stone. And the servants would have used a, a cart, maybe an ox or some other beast of burden to transport them, and it probably took a little while to get it done each day. Now, these, some of, these are some of the factors, uh, all of this, that sort of set the table for this encounter. But as we pick up the story itself, Jesus and his disciples, they're at this wedding feast. Uh, they would have been drinking wine, dancing, I know it's bad because we don't like to hear that, but they, they were dancing, uh, telling stories around the table, uh, all the things that sort of go with this sort of event. Jesus uh, had already begun to sort of assemble his disciples, but he hadn't done any miracles or proclaimed the kingdom yet. So in this setting, he was just one of many people at this wedding. But then the wine ran out. Mary came to Jesus. So she had experienced a miracle before when an angel came and told her she would become pregnant and give birth to Jesus. She knew that he was unlike anyone else, and that if anyone could do something about this, Jesus could. His response is interesting, though. He acted like it wasn't his problem. As if he was waiting for a certain time to begin his ministry, and this wasn't it. Like, I'm just here to enjoy this. But Mary didn't accept his response. Uh, we don't get a whole lot of the conversation if there was more of it. All we see is that she then turns to the servants and told them to do whatever Jesus said. And then he went ahead and did something about the situation. And this shows us that Jesus is able to be persuaded. And maybe we're thinking that, okay, it's for his mother, so it's sort of an exception. But later in his ministry, we see this happen again, and it isn't with his mother. Uh, not even with anyone Jewish. For that in Matthew 15, 21-28, a Canaanite woman came to Jesus begging him to heal her daughter. And at first... He ignored her completely. And his disciples were telling, her, uh, telling Jesus to send her away, send her away. And at one point he even said, when she's talking to him, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Like, I'm, I have nothing to do with you. But she persisted. Uh, and she came and knelt before him in this story. And she was pleading for his help. And he responded a second time. It's not right to take the children's bread, speaking of him being sent to Israel, and throw it to the dogs. That's kind of a harsh thing to hear Jesus say, right? But she persisted. And finally, in her persistence, he told her she had great faith and that her daughter would be healed. And what we find in both this story and the one at the wedding feast is that Jesus can be persuaded. And if we come to him in faith, trusting that he can do something about our situation, he will. In Matthew 7, 
7 through 11, Jesus himself said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Why would Jesus teach his followers to ask, seek, and knock if he wasn't willing to listen and act? This is important. We need to pay close attention to this. He listened to his mother and was persuaded to act. He listened to the Canaanite woman and was persuaded to act. If we come to Jesus with sincere hearts, I'm convinced he can be persuaded to act on our behalf as well. As long as what we're asking for is in our best interest, like saving a family from a lifetime of shame and humiliation, or healing a woman's daughter. But that's not all we find in this story. After the quick conversation with his mother, Jesus told the servants to go and fill the jars with water. And as we noted a few minutes ago, this would have taken some time, and it, it would have required some work. And that's something we need to recognize as well. Sometimes... Jesus can be persuaded to act on our behalf, but in all of these instances, the people involved had to approach Jesus. And at least part of what we should get out of this story is that we can approach Jesus as well. Jesus said in Matthew 11, 28-30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Mary trusted Jesus. The Canaanite woman trusted Jesus. They, they came to him, they approached him. But do we? Do we really believe Jesus can do something about our situation? Not just our afterlife situation, but our situation right now. Are we willing to come to the table with him? To ask, and seek, and knock. To plead with him if need be. Are we willing to lay our burdens down before him? Okay, so back to the water jars. The servants did what Jesus said. But why did Jesus need water? Couldn't he have simply spoken wine into the jars like he spoke creation into existence? He has that power, right? There must have been a reason for involving the servants instead, right? And I actually think there's at least two. The first is that Jesus didn't come for the just for the wealthier folks who were at the feast. He didn't just interact with people of power or influence. He was perfectly willing to interact with the lowly servants and to involve them in achieving his purpose. 
We seem to keep coming back to this, but it's important for us to remember there is no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. And more than not, Jesus involved those of lowly status to bring about the kingdom. Think about the 12 disciples that he chose. They weren't the cream of the crop. They were not the folks who were the highest in the religious order and, and all the brightest. They were outsiders in society for the most part. Outcasts and castaways, whatever term you want to throw at it. And in this situation, it's, it's no different, really. Jesus worked with the servants and involved them in his miracle, which should guide how we act and interact with people in two ways. We should treat everyone equally. Never think of one group as being better or more deserving than another. Second thing is we should never think that Jesus can't or won't work with us and through us based on status or wealth or power or lack thereof. That's not what makes the decision for him. If we're wondering if Jesus can and will involve us in his purpose for the kingdom, the answer is yes. If we will listen to him and do what he tells us, he will work in and through us for our good. But if we're wondering if Jesus can and will involve the people we don't like in his purpose for the kingdom, or the ones who have hurt us in the past, are the ones with different theological or political opinions than us? The answer is still yes. Jesus will involve whoever comes to him and listens and does what he says, even if they aren't perfect and don't have everything figured out. The other reason Jesus wanted water instead of simply speaking wine into the jars is that Jesus was doing something bigger than just providing wine for this wedding feast. He was laying the foundation for the transformation that was going to come. In fact, it's connected to the idea of the resurrection that we've been talking about over the past few weeks. If you think about this, water is important. It has a purpose. But it's simple. It's plain. It's ordinary. Wine, on the other hand, is something else entirely. It takes a lot of work, for us at least. The grapes have to be grown and picked. They have to be crushed. They have to have time to ferment. And then they're aged in barrels. And only then can they be bottled and shared for consumption. In our world, most water is purified before it gets to our faucets or into our bottles. But in that day and time, wine was generally more suited for drinking than water, which meant it was not simple or plain or ordinary. As we talked about during the series on the resurrection, what Jesus does in us through the power of the Holy Spirit is basically like turning water into wine. Taking something useful but plain, bodies we have now, making it into something so much more. We see in this story, when the servants took the wine to the master of the feast, his reaction was astonishment. Mainly because what was happening was outside the norm. It was well beyond what was customary. 
And look what he said to the bridegroom in verse 10. The custom was to serve the good wine first and then bring out the lesser wine when everyone was inebriated. But because of what Jesus had done, this wine was even better than the wine that had been provided at first. His expectation had been upended. The way he thought things worked had been flipped on its head. And this is what Jesus does when he comes to the table. Whatever expectations we may bring with us, they're going to be upended. Whatever we may think, uh, as far as things are, how are they supposed to work, it's all going to get flipped on its head. We read the Gospels and, and we think we have Jesus all figured out, but we don't. We think Jesus will show up in our lives and save us and then we can just sort of keep plugging along and doing things our way, but we can't. That's not how this works. There's a great example of this right in the middle of our story. See, we tend to think that uh, Jesus only saves certain kinds of people, that he only works among certain folks, and generally they look and act and think like we do. But consider this. When Jesus made this water into wine, who was able to have it? Anyone at the feast. No one was rejected. And it was free to all. There was no cover charge. No get your life together first kind of approach to this. Jesus came to this feast and provided for everyone there. No one was left out. And that's a message I think our culture needs to hear from us. Because we live in a time when no one gets along unless they agree about everything. There are gatekeepers in our culture and in our politics and in the church. There are gatekeepers who have established these sort of lists or ideas of what is right or what is wrong or what is acceptable and unacceptable. And, and they decide who gets to be involved and who doesn't. They decide who gets to even be at the feast. Much less share the wine. But Jesus isn't like that. His provision is for everyone. It's for anyone who will come to the table. And this is why David declared in Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. In John 6, Jesus went on to identify with this idea by calling himself the bread of life. In fact, in verses 53 through 54, he said, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This seems to have been very confusing for people at the time. They didn't understand the concept. And interestingly, it caused a bunch of followers to turn back and stop following Jesus. They couldn't wrap their minds around the idea of Jesus being their sustenance. It wasn't what they expected. It didn't fit their preconceived notions. Apparently, they thought they had the Messiah all figured out. 
Only they completely missed him standing right in front of them. They missed him because they were looking for someone else. Someone more in line with what they thought he should be. And I think we must misunderstand Jesus in a similar way. We read the Gospels or we hear the stories and we think Jesus was this way or that way and we almost invariably make him out to be a lot like us. Which if we stop to consider it, that's the very definition of idolatry. We have to let Jesus be Jesus. And that means he is our Lord and Savior, but it also might mean he is Lord and Savior of some people we don't like don't agree with. He might invite people to his table that we would never have imagined being there. People we would have never invited ourselves. I mean, Jesus was at a family event in this story. How many of us get along perfectly with all our family, right? And yet he made wine for everyone. And he made an abundance of Six 30-gallon stone jars full of wine. I mean, that's 180 <coughs> gallons of wine. That's a lot. One of the most important things we can gain from this story is a willingness to invite everyone and accept anyone who will come. Because that's what Jesus shows us in this story. His willingness to invite and involve everyone should be evident in our lives as well. And what's fascinating is that John marked this as the first sign and the one that caused his disciples to believe in him. This is how Jesus began his ministry. This is how he kicked it off. By displaying a willingness to come to the table with anyone who will meet him there. Anyone who will accept his offer. And by his own admission, it's not heavy. Which means it isn't about being able to follow all the rules or commandments on the front end. It's not about being perfect or even good. It's not about what we can or can't do at all. Meeting Jesus at the table is simply a matter of showing up. And if we will show up and meet with him at the table, our lives will be changed forever. Will you pray with me?